Well, it's a joy to be here. We've had a wonderful time helping Dave and Kath and family move into a new house and uh, celebrate my dad's graduation last year to heaven, or last week, excuse me. I had a chance uh, about a week ago, last Thursday, to take a little break from all the work, and Dave and I did one of our favorite things, went to the movies together. We saw the intellectually challenging and philosophically profound movie, Cowboys and Aliens. Actually, they did attempt to make it profound. They named the western town Absolution, and they had a uh, minister character who was, I thought, the most interesting character in the film, Preacher Meacham. Uh, Here's a couple quotes from Preacher, Preacher Meacham in the movie. You have to earn God's presence. Then you got to recognize it and act on it. Whether you end up in heaven or hell, it's not God's plan. It's up to you. I turned to Dave and I said, this guy's an Arminian on steroids. <laughs> but the amazing thing is that most Americans agree with Preacher Meacham. Whether you go to heaven or hell is up to you. You make the decision. You make the choice. God needs our help to decide who goes to heaven. A majority of Americans, by a number of different polls that I've seen, believe that this statement is in Scripture. The Lord helps those who help themselves. Most Americans believe that that's in the Bible. It's actually in Poor Richard's Almanac by Benjamin Franklin. The pilgrims, or the Puritans, who were the great theological foundation for this country, proclaimed and loved the doctrine of God's aseity. Those of you taking notes, it's spelled A-S-I-E-T-Y, aseity. The aseity of God means that He is complete in Himself. He is totally without need of anything outside Himself. He certainly, most of all, does not need yours and my help to accomplish His purpose. He graciously chooses to use us, but He doesn't need us. I'm not sure that Abram and Sarai would ascribe to God's aseity, at least from what we see in Genesis chapter 16. Let's read that passage of Scripture together. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain, obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. 
But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. You can be seated. So what's the big idea in this passage? I always tell my preaching students at RTS, there's a big idea that you want to communicate. And I think the big idea here is that even when we sinfully substitute our plan for God's, our sovereign God offers redemption. The story begins with Sarah, Sarai, I've misspelled it actually in the notes, deciding that God needs a hand if He's going to fulfill His covenant promise. Now, if you've been in church for these sermons on Genesis, you know that three previous times God has promised Abram and Sarai that they will have children. Genesis 12, 1-3. Genesis 13, 14 to 18, and then most significantly in Genesis 15, just before this story, verses 1 to 6, Abram complains, I don't have an heir. It's been almost 10 years, Lord, and this Eleazar of Damascus is going to inherit all of my estate. And God says, Eleazar will not inherit your estate, but Your own son, your very own son, shall be your heir. But it had been ten years. And so Sarai invokes a custom that was fairly common in the Middle East. She takes her servant. It was customary to have a servant act as a surrogate mother if a woman was unable to conceive children. And so she does that with Hagar. It's clear from the text that God is not pleased. Both Sarai and Abram are guilty of lack of faith. If you look at the second verse, it says, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. If you're familiar with the writing of Moses, the third chapter of Genesis uses that same language. In Genesis 3.17, 
God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and not to me. He listened to her, Sarai, and not to God. Well, as you know from the story, Sarai's plan is successful in that her handmaid becomes pregnant. But it turns out to be a disaster. Hagar becomes Hagar the Horrible. She's prideful. She flaunts her pregnancy in her mistress's face. Sarai becomes jealous and bitter. I think it's not even faintly humorous. It's hilarious what Sarai does to Abram. Look at the fifth verse. She says, May the wrong done to me be on you. This is you, Abram. I'm asking God to judge you. Now, think about the story. She asks him to go to her handmaid. But now, much like Eve and Adam, there's an echo again of the fall. The woman you gave me tempted me and I sinned. Gave me the fruit. What's Eve's response? The serpent deceived me. We're quick to rationalize our sin and blame someone else. In fact, when we stop trusting God, we start blaming others. And it's a fact of life that people who sin with you will also sin against you. Abraham and Sarai sin together and then they sin against one another. But there's good news. There's good news in this story. The God who sees and hears everything offers redemption. Verses 7 to 13 are the story of Hagar's encounter with the angel of the Lord. And there are two names given to people in these verses one is Ishmael, which means God hears. And the other is El Roy, God sees. Now, Hagar is not a member of the covenant family. She was Egyptian. But she knew the real God when she encountered Him. In fact, she encountered the Lord Jesus Christ in this story. Why do I say that the angel of the Lord here is Jesus? Well, three reasons. The first and most significant is that she calls Him God, and He does not correct her. Every other time in Scripture when a human being worships an angel or calls an angel Lord, the angel immediately corrects that mistaken impression. The angel of the Lord here accepts that term, God. The angel of the Lord, secondly, does not quote God the Father, but speaks in the first person. I will multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And thirdly, this is not the first appearance of Jesus Christ in the book of Genesis. Who did Adam walk with in the garden? He walked with God. And we know, of course, that God in the flesh is Christ. God the Father is a spirit. 
God in the flesh who can be seen is Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. There's a real similarity in this story where Christ encounters Hagar at a well to John the fourth chapter. The woman of Samaria. A woman also rejected by her family and by society, but a woman who is given hope by God the Son. The one who sees her and hears her and shows her what she can be if she listens to what he has to say. The angel of the Lord Jesus Christ tells Hagar that she will be the mother of a multitude. And Ishmael is then embraced by Abram. We see in verse 16, Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Naming was the prerogative of a father who welcomed a child into the family. There is grace in this story. But as Dr. Silvernail, Silvernail is fond to point out, there is also consequence. Sin does have consequence. The angel says that Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man, a fighter. And as many of you know, the Muslims trace their lineage back to Ishmael, a lineage of a lot of warfare. So how does this story apply to our lives? Seems kind of bizarre. Handmaids, surrogate parenting. Well, I want to give three examples of how we often try to do the same thing that Sarai does and that Abraham does. And that is help the Lord with His plan. The first one is giving. I'm not intending to offend anybody, but I'm pretty sure I will be offending people in the rest of the sermon. In the area of giving, many of us believe this lie, that if I don't give a full tithe to God, I can better provide for myself and for my family. I've had people actually say that to me. I can't afford to tithe. And my response to them has always been, you can't afford not to tithe. Why? Because God says as clearly as He can in Malachi, the third chapter, that if you do not give a tithe, 10%, to me, you are robbing me. You are stealing from God. I was part of a denomination years ago that had a stewardship emphasis for all churches. And their emphasis one year was, Move toward the tithe. If last year you gave 2% of your income, this year why don't you consider giving 3%? Well, I wrote a letter to the person who invented this campaign, and I said, so what you're saying is you stole 8% from God last year, and this year would you only steal 7 And you'll be really blessed. Well, God tells us, to return to Him by the giving of the tithe. People say, well, tithing's not in the New Testament. It was assumed by the New Testament writers that 
tithing would of course happen. Jesus, in fact, endorses it in Matthew 23.23 when He says to the Pharisees, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, these spices that you grow on the windowsill. He says, this you ought to have done. Yes, you should tithe, but you neglect the more important things. Love and justice and mercy. Tithing is Christianity 101. It's a foundation for sound stewardship. And God promises, the reason I tell people you can't afford not to tithe is that God promises on His own name that if you do, I will open the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing upon you that you won't be able to contain it. And that blessing is not just financial. I believe God promises to bless us with prosperity in all aspects of life if we are faithful to Him. Second example, marriage. I can help God by missionary dating. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with non-believers. I was a youth pastor for 13 years and saw literally hundreds of kids dating. And I would always stress, God wants you to date a Christian, a fellow Christian. Many of them did not take that advice. Um, some of you have not taken that advice. I'm not here to lay a guilt trip on anybody. And I hear people who say, well, so-and-so was not a Christian when they got married and then he or she became a Christian. Praise God. God is merciful. He's gracious. But it's not just that one verse. A theme in the Old Testament, a theme in Scripture, is to marry believers. If you're a young person here this morning, I want to urge you to look first at a person's spiritual qualities. Not whether they're good looking, not whether they're popular or cool, but their relationship with Jesus Christ. For every successful missionary dating story, I could give you five disasters where a Christian was really compromised in his or her faith because they dated an unbeliever. The most common way, though, that I think we try to help God is in planning. We make our plans. We decide the best way to go. And then we tell God or ask God to bless it. Most of our prayers sound like a grocery list. Lord, this is what I want you to do for me. Bop, 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 bop. I believe the Scriptures want us to do the very opposite and say, Lord, what? What do You want for me to do? What is Your will? Show me. Show me where it is You want me to go. What it is You want me to do. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Most of us try to control our own lives by the force of our wills and our efforts. We're intelligent. We think we know what to do. And so, we try to control things. Guess what? Control is an illusion. 
If you think you're in control, think again. Life has a way of thwarting our attempts at control. And frankly, I believe God wants that to be the case so that we do trust in Him and don't lean on our own understanding. Anybody who has a puppy knows that you can't control life. My grand dog, Dixie, has showed me that we're not really in control. She's fairly well behaved, but she's also going to be unpredictable. As our children, as our spouses, I realize that it's often that we climb the ladder of success. And as Stephen Covey wrote, realize it's against the wrong wall. I counseled in my first pastorate with a, a man who was really successful in business. He worked long, hard hours, and he rationalized it by saying, I'm providing for my family. And he did. He provided very well for his family. But he told me an experience. He'd finally gotten to the top of the ladder, really reached the apex of his profession, and he decided to relax. Took a two-week family vacation, which he had never done before. And on vacation, he was with his two older teenage children, and interestingly, they had their own game plan. And it didn't include him. He was deeply hurt. And he went to his wife and he said, what's going on here? Don't they like me? She said, no, they've learned to live without you. He made his plans and he was successful, but it wasn't God's plan. It's so easy for us to do that. Now this story tells us that God offers redemption. And He offers redemption in every situation. But just like Hagar, we need to repent and return. The angel of the Lord told her to go back to her mistress and to be obedient. If you are not tithing, I challenge you to return to the Lord by taking the full tithe into the storehouse. If you're a young person, I challenge you to follow God's best for you and commit to dating only Christians. And if you are climbing that ladder and it's up against the, the wrong wall, if you're going in the wrong direction, stop. Seek the Lord. Turn around. Go back. And start over again. Asking God for His direction and for His power. The truth of Scripture is that God helps those who cannot help themselves, which is every one of us here this morning. Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, what does He mean by that? Unbelievers can drive cars, they can get married, they can have professions and families and all those good things. Jesus is talking about bearing fruit that lasts, making a difference for all eternity. Anything that we attempt to add to Christ's finished work on the cross subtracts from it. 
that hymn we're going to sing, says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Your salvation was accomplished by Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Receive that. Rejoice in it. But sanctification, growth in Christ, is not in theological terms monergistic, the work of one. It is synergistic, the work of two. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says it best. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Notice it's work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. Work out your salvation. And the key phrase there is God is at work in you. Since that is true, God is at work in us. He is able to do in us His will and His work by His power. May we learn from this sad example to obey God's Word even when it's difficult. To seek Him rather than telling Him what He should do for us. And may each one of us be richly blessed by that process. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank You that Your Word is so honest. It doesn't portray plaster saints, people of perfection, but people with feet of clay just like each one of us. Thank You that this story about Abram and Sarai is recorded so that we might learn from it and that we might truly learn to trust You. Even in those difficult times, even when it seems like a long time that we've been praying about a particular need. Lord, give us patience and perseverance. That is the fruit of Your Holy Spirit. Enable us, Lord, to love You with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To obey You even in the difficult things. And to allow You to work in us that which is well-pleasing to You. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus and let the people of God say, Amen.